This is Hal Hester, lead pastor of Vine Life, and this is our podcast, The Empowered Word. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective on what God is doing in your life. Please enjoy the message. All right. Well, good morning. Welcome to the first Sunday in Advent. Now, maybe you've been a part of a church that didn't really talk about Advent, and you're kind of wondering, you know, like, what does that mean? It's one of those kind of church words, you know. Uh, and so, uh, if you're not familiar with the term, Advent just simply means the first coming. And so, uh, the, the advent of His coming is his, his, his just His first initiation of making His way to us. It's all about when Jesus was born to the Virgin Mary. The difference is, is that when we talk about um, Christmas, we are talking about a single feast, the Christ Mass that we do on Christmas Eve uh, in the celebration of the church. Uh, and Advent is more of a preparation and looking forward to the expectation of Christmas coming. Uh, so people go, why Christmas and then Advent and all these words and you know, uh, at one time they meant a whole lot more to the church than they do today. Um, but in reality, uh, we do expect a second coming, the glorious close of this age when the full and final revelation of God's kingdom is made manifest and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Messiah is Lord of all. But in the interim... It has been the long tradition of the church since the earliest days of the church to celebrate Advent uh, over the course of four Sundays leading up to the celebration of the Christ Mass on December 25th. And so with that in mind, every year uh, we do a special Advent series. And the, the reason we do that, the reason it's been done historically in the church is just this, to remind us that He came in fulfillment of the Scriptures, and then to build upon that a sense of confidence that He is coming again, right? You know, the best uh, evidence of what someone will do in the future is how they've behaved in the past. That's not always the most encouraging thing when we're talking about transformation in Christ, right? Because we believe in the transformative power of Christ to help us do differently than we did in the past. But nonetheless, uh, we know just from the nature of things that the reality is, is uh, past behavior is the best indicator of future behavior, and the truth is this, that as we look at the witness of the Scripture, that we see this overwhelming evidence that God is faithful to do everything that He has promised to do, that the 90% of those things that were promised in terms of Messiah, the fulfillment of those Scriptures, have been fulfilled, and we have confidence then that that remaining small percentage, the final coming, uh, is, is, you know, a def, is def, uh, definite you know, uh, sense of expectation and all that. I'm getting all tongue-tied. I don't usually do that. But anyhow, with that in mind, we do the Advent series every year and we focus on some of the events. We focus on the prophecies of the birth of Jesus. And uh, this particular series, we're focusing on events surrounding Jesus' birth. So over the next few weeks, we're going to look at four different encounters, beginning today with Mary's song. So what happens when the Gabriel comes to visit Mary and her song in response to the announcement of the angel that, uh, you know, about what will happen. Then week two, next week, we're going to focus in on Joseph and on his prayer after his interaction with the angel, what he does. 
Week three, we're going to talk about the angels and their interaction with the shepherds who were tending their flocks by night. And then week four, we're going to look at the prophets, Simeon and Anna, both present at Jesus' day of dedication in Jerusalem at the temple. And I think you're going to find all of that just very encouraging and the sense of expectation that it generates within us about what God's kingdom is all about. So I hope you'll join us for all four messages. But today, setting the scene for today's message, uh, this is you know, where uh, the angel has come to Mary, um, her, and then she goes on her visit with Elizabeth and ultimately uh, shares her song, her sonnet, if you will. Uh, it's probably one of the most neglected passages in the Protestant church, just kind of out of you know, reaction, the tension between Protestant and Roman Catholic uh, over the, the issue of devotion to Mary. Um, which, you know, so, but here's the thing is that we're just going to look at the text, which is full of not only great theology, uh, but a, a sense of anticipation about God's kingdom, and then also what God is saying about Mary through all of that. So I, I think it's a beautiful passage. I hope that you will engage with me deeply in this. We're in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. If you're using a phone or tablet, please set that to silent for the sake of those around you. I'm going to read it from the English Standard Version, but please follow along in whatever translation you have. The one in your lap, always my favorite because that's the one you're actually reading, and that's the best reason to like it. All right, Luke chapter 1, verse 26, and we read these words. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this, saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He'll be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his king, of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth... In her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who has been called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Mary said, 
My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble of the state of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation he's shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thought of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Blessed be the reading of God's holy word. All right, so, well, Gabriel is really busy all through this uh, series. Um, uh, actually, uh, now in the text, he's only mentioned by name twice, uh, but we know a couple of things. One, uh, simply from a rabbinic tradition, that all things pertaining to Israel are announced by Gabriel. Gabriel is always the announcing angel. Uh, it doesn't use the words in the text, archangel. That is a term that we have kind of invented to explain hierarchy in terms of that there are the different, the different classes of angel. The, te- the word, though, doesn't actually uh, appear in the text. But nonetheless, uh, the, if you will, the archangel Gabriel uh, has come and brought her this message, the most trusted messenger of God when it comes to the news of his son being born. And so here he is, uh, uh, you know, bringing this note, this word to her. And this is particularly intriguing because if you look at the other place where Gabriel is mentioned by name, of course, we're talking about Elizabeth's husband being in the temple and he's offering sacrifices. He got chosen by Lot and now he's there and he's in the holy place and he's making sacrifice and the angel of the Lord appears to him while he is in the Holy of Holies, uh, which is like pretty terrifying if you want to just really think about it for just a moment. You're in there all by yourself. Nobody else is supposed to be in there. And suddenly you hear a voice in the darkness. And, uh, you know, so uh, you take that for what you will. And uh, it, so in that moment, uh, Zechariah uh, is told about his wife being pregnant, and she is, you know, uh, in her latter years. So I just want you, you know, without being churchy, right, for a moment, can you just, I know, you know, you grow up in church and you hear the stories and things. I just want you to think for just a moment what it would be like if you had never heard the story before and suddenly you heard that a woman in in her latter years is suddenly pregnant. And the kind of sense of, like, uh, shock and maybe a little bit of awe, but mostly just shock, right? I mean, uh, sometimes we're a little tough on Zechariah, you know, because he goes, um, my wife is old, right? You know, like he's just, uh, you know, and, and it's recorded for posterity's sake, so now everybody knows you told her that, you know, you said that about her to the angel of the Lord, but nonetheless, uh, I, I mean, you just just kind of think about what it's like for Zechariah in that moment, right? And, and he hears that, and he immediately goes, how's that possible? And so he's filled with doubt, and in, 
in that, uh, you know, the Lord uh, kind of deals with him a little bit and that he strikes him dumb temporarily until the child is born in which he speaks and confesses that what the Lord has told him is true. Um, but there's also this sense in which you're standing before the angel Gabriel. We're not talking about like Bubba said, and you went, yeah, whatever, Bubba. You know, it wasn't Bubba said, it's, 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 it's not even the angel Bubba. You know, I don't know if there is such a thing, but <clears throat> maybe in the South. But, um, but in that moment, the angel Gabriel tells you this, and um, I think probably in part just being, having lived a long, full life already, and somewhat maybe even a little disappointed that he and his wife have never had a child, like cynicism is probably one of the greatest dangers of Christians, of, of, of God-fearing people. Uh, when things don't turn out the way we think they should have, when we have ideas about what God should have done for us versus the way it's unfolded, and then we have a way of kind of you know, distrusting God, and of course, Satan's right there always to whisper and say, see, I told you you couldn't trust him. If you and I look, I mean, that's the way it's been from the very beginning, right? If you and I go into Genesis and we look at the whole discussion there as, as uh, they're dealing with the question of the fruit, and the implication is, is that, well, you can't trust God. You can't trust him. And so Satan constantly uses those kinds of things to deeply embed within us a kind of cynicism that has no expectations of God or low expectations of God. We might even be able to pray earnestly and fervently for others, and yet that same sense of confidence that God would heal, help, work in, transform me, come up against the wall of my own cynicism. It's the enemy of faith that often traps all of us. And the longer we're Christians, it should be that over time, the longer we're Christians, it, it, we should be seeing those victories mount up and we go, yeah, but somehow in the midst of that, it, it's just an intriguing thing about humankind. And, and of course, like I said, there's that other team on the field that instead of looking at the mountain of blessing and counting your blessing and going, I believe God's on my side, we have this tendency to go, yeah, I believe God will do that, but just well, not for me. I don't know, you know, other than to say that there's another team on the field, why we do that, but we do it. I know in my own life, um, it's been true at times. I, I've caught myself uh, just kind of ruminating on cynicism. That's what meditation is. We're either meditating on good things or we're meditating on things that haven't worked out the way we want them to worry, cynicism, things like that. <clears throat> you already know how to meditate. It's just a question of what you're meditating on. And so, uh, in this case, uh, Zechariah, you know, is you know, in complete contrast with Mary. The benefit of age, life experience, maybe even his theological training. Who knows? You know, uh, sometimes uh, really good theology can get in the way of experiencing God just simply because you've already decided what God can and can't do based on your theology rather than letting God be God, and sometimes maybe your theology needs some adjustment. Hello? Don't everybody amen at once. Okay, so, 
you know, it's just this reality, right? That I believe everything I believe because I'm convinced that it's right and true. However, I'm also painfully aware that there are some things over the years that I've had to like back up and change my heart and my mind a little bit about. And when I look at the broad wealth of Christian knowledge and information and understanding, and I look at some of the heroes of the faith uh, over, the, over time, and I look at some of their writings and how sometimes like a Wesley contradicts a Calvin or something like that, both God-fearing people who love Jesus and uh, are heroes of the faith, and they contradict one another on some points. And here's what I know. One of them's got to be wrong. Maybe both. Hello? And so uh, sometimes, sometimes our theology needs adjusting no matter how well-intentioned and no matter how studied we are. So in this case, uh, Zechariah you know, hedges, and, uh, but Mary, Mary asks the most simple question. She doesn't say, you know, uh, it's impossible, whatever. She just, uh, she points out the obvious. She says, um, uh, well, I've never known a man. Now, if you were reading along with me in the ESV, or you're reading in the NIV, or another modern translation, I know what it says, is it says, uh, how can this be since I am a virgin? Now, in the original language, uh, the word virgin appears in the reference to her age and gender uh, multiple times, but when it gets to that sentence, it, does, it separates that and says, literally, in the sentence there, I have never known a man. Now, just for the sake of just kind of pointing out something about English and the original language, uh, you know, the original language right there in that sentence actually says, since I've never known a man, because the word virgin in both Greek and Hebrew just means a young woman. Only in English does it mean having not had sex. So for our purpose in modern English, virgin and not having known a man means the same thing. Uh, but in the original text, it says, it, it explains it. She did not know a man. That, that it's, infinite, you know, it's, it's very clear that we're talking about a virgin birth. Now, that when you go back to Isaiah and you're wrestling with some of the things there in Isaiah about uh, the, the prophecy and how that unfolds uh, is a longer discussion, but I don't have time for today. But the point is here that she says, I've never known a man. How can this be? Now, from a natural science viewpoint, I, I, I've got to tell you that there, are, there, are, there is proof of a female conceiving a child without a man. But it so happens in every example, the child was female and not male because there was a lack of Y chromosome. So, from a scientific standpoint, already she said something very, like, incredulous in the minds of people that they look around and they go, well, you know, uh, maybe you've heard of someone having a spontaneous pregnancy. Chances are you haven't, unless you, you know, took the time to scour the internet because, you know, you're a nerd. But anyhow, um, and, uh, you know, or maybe then, you know, uh, so we look at that and we go, well, I've, I've never heard of uh, the idea of a virgin birth, unless somebody was trying to cover something up. And then, um, and then there's the historical perspective, right? The, the inclusion of Jesus' inception in both Luke and Matthew, and the details 
uh, being a little unique to each account, but solidly telling the same story. And so uh, we have people claiming today, well, the, the virgin birth was a late invention, came along, uh, you know, late second, early third century or something like that. And what we can point out is that no, we have great historical evidence over and over again that from the very beginning, the church believed uh, solidly in the, in, this, you know, uh, the, in the virgin birth. They embraced the scandal, if you will. And so uh, there is this kind of little bit of a scandalous thing. I, I mentioned it. You know, usually when people mention a virgin birth, the first thing we think is, well, somebody did something they weren't supposed to, and now they're trying to blame God for it, you know, or whatever. And, but listen, the church embraced it. They, the church didn't shy away from it. Uh, even like we talked about uh, last week when we, as we were in John and got to the crucifixion, the crucifixion is scandalous in the minds of people, right? I mean, this is how the Romans tormented people to death. And so the idea of you and I wearing a cross today is a lot like you and I wearing, you know, an electric chair or, you know, a syringe or a, you know, a, a gun or something around our neck as a symbol of, of death and resurrection. Uh, it, it's, it's today we, we, we wear crosses all the time. People who don't even believe in the cross wear crosses. It's but in its day and age, when the church first embraced the cross, it was a symbol of humiliation. It was the utter defeat of your enemies. It was a way of putting someone to death in such a public and humiliating way that everyone who was associated with them would think to themselves, whatever you do, don't get involved with that. And certainly... Don't tell everybody, like, you're with them, because you might die the same kind of death. So then for the Christians to begin to just co-opt that, right? There's something about Christianity that we take the most defallen and destructive of things, and we turn it into a point of victory. <laughs> it's the idea of redemption, that there's no one and nothing in all the universe that's beyond redemption. Not you, not whatever you've done. Isn't that beautiful? You believe in a God of redemption. Please don't limit him in his ability to redeem that which is lost and far away that which seems unredeemable. Not a person, not things, not days. Don't make your God so small He can't redeem them. And then there's the theological perspective. Seated here in biblical context, it's unlike ancient Greek pagan theology because it doesn't involve a superior race of divine beings taking advantage of a human being. Whenever you look in pagan theology and there's interaction between the gods and the humans, it's always a one up. There's always this abuse. There's always this sense of, of taking advantage of, of, of putting the human being in a difficult situation. Bring me the right sacrifice. Bring me the right present. And maybe, maybe I'll like what you did. And maybe I'll show some kindness, some mercy to you. And instead, here we have the message that God so loved the world, that He sent His one and only Son 
into the world to redeem it, to save it, to rescue it, that he identifies with our pain, our difficulty. But here's the thing, is not the selfish God who takes advantage of the poor young girl, but who brings this announcement of blessing, the God who made her, who breathed life into her, tells her of what he wants to do for the sake of humanity, and then we listen to her words, may it be done to me. Yes. Not, not some kind of savage rape of some person taken advantage of or something like that. No, there's this, this invitation to join God in what he's doing. I'm doing this amazing thing, and she says, yes, I want to be part of that. I want to experience that. I want to join you, God. And, and, and here's the thing is that without any thought, just this selflessness of what it's going to cost. Can I just point out to you that Anytime you join God in what he's doing, I know that pop theology has said, well, if you're on board with God, that everything will work out fine and be without complication and all that, you know, like, um, not in my Bible. Uh, maybe in your theology, but not in my Bible. Okay? In my Bible, the overwhelming testimony is, is that we escape nothing. We go right in it through it with him, and the presence of God is at work in that, and that transformative power that we live and do life differently in the midst of the stuff. And so here it is that she says, yes. She says, yes. Out of the love for what God is doing in the world, she says, yes and joins with God's commitment to have a love for all of humankind, she says yes to be part of a bigger plan of rescuing the cosmos. Now, all of this is important technically just because it makes the point that Jesus was both fully human and fully divine. She's a human being, God overshadows her, she's full, he's fully divine and that he's being male and it signifies that that it couldn't have happened just spontaneously, but also that there is no human intervention in this. She doesn't know a man. And so all of these things building the argument that Jesus, fully human and fully divine. <clears throat> so let me make this equally clear. Mary's virtue was not her virginity. Let that sink in for a moment, because I know your immediate response internally is, wait, wait, wait. There's a real important point that she was a virgin. Yes. But her virtue was not her virginity. Her virtue was her willing obedience. See, she was invited to be part of what God was doing, and she said yes to God. And parents, if you want to teach your little girls about how to be a virtuous woman of God, teach her to say yes to God and not worry about public opinion when she does. But please don't teach her that all of her value was wrapped up in either her virginity or having babies. Let me say that again. Please do not teach our girls that all of their value, pre-sex or post-sex, is their vagina. I don't say that to be crude. I'm saying that sometimes we really have communicated that the only thing that's valuable of a woman is that. 
And it's not helpful. And if anything, it's a destructive theology. I believe in purity and waiting till marriage. But what made Mary so virtuous was that she said yes to God. Have you taught your little girls to say yes to God? Have you taught your little boys to say yes to God? Above all others, above, above all public opinion, above everything else that they could do, that they're capable of doing, have you communicated that the most valuable thing that you can do is say yes to God? I don't just mean in getting saved. I mean like what you do with everything in life, that you would put your life into the hands of God. Are we teaching that to our children? Are, do you know that? Do you know that your greatest virtue is saying yes to God? So teach her that she has a call on her life. Teach her that saying yes to God could change the entire world. And when Mary said yes to God, the Holy Spirit enabled her, as the Holy Spirit does, to do more by the power of the Holy Spirit than anyone can do alone. And she becomes a key part of God's plan of saving the cosmos. Wow. No wonder generations would call her blessed. Because she said, yes. Then she heads off to go see Elizabeth. Because let me tell you, no one's going to understand like Elizabeth, right? I mean, Elizabeth now in her old age and she's, you know, heavy laden with child. I mean, like, you know, I mean, like this, is, this has got to be like in some ways almost comedic in some sense, right? I don't mean like comedic as in, you know, as in funny ha-ha, but I mean there's a sense of absurdity here, right? She is in her old age and she is pregnant. The other woman is a virgin and never been with a man. And, like they've, and now God is doing this thing, making this definitive statement before the whole world that he's in this. And everybody is like, can you imagine how people are just losing their minds at this point? Can you imagine if anybody, you're just with Elizabeth and Mary at the same time. And like you got Elizabeth pregnant in her old age, and then her cousin comes, and her cousin's pregnant and saying, yeah, I'm, you know, it's the Holy Spirit, and I conceived, I'm a virgin. And I mean, I just want you to think about what everybody else is thinking right now. Cuckoo. Whole family full of nut jobs. No one's going to understand like Elizabeth. And Mary's going to need some encouragement and support. Can't you imagine the storms headed her way? To tell everyone that you've conceived the child by the power of the Holy Spirit. Man, the rumors. Remember what I said? When you decide to follow God, life doesn't get easier. Neither the devil nor mankind will just roll over and say, oh, well, you can't touch that one. Instead, you and I look at like Revelation chapter 12 that describes her challenge like a woman being pursued by a great red dragon seeking to devour the child before he can rule the nations. 
And that what God is doing in this moment is he's tucking her away out of sight, out of the limelight, in an effort to let him grow up in the wilderness, if you will, rather than in the limelight. It continues even after this, even after they go to the temple that we'll talk about just in a couple of weeks here. Uh, it continues, uh, even going down to Egypt to escape uh, because the enemy wants to devour him before he has the chance to walk out our salvation. It's why we read so little about Jesus. People say, why don't we know more about Jesus' early years? Because God was hiding him from the powers of darkness. Both the power of Satan and the power of men. Equally dark. Don't ever be convinced that all the darkness is because of Satan. So Mary arrives in the company of Elizabeth and despite her only being newly pregnant, I mean, you think about it in just kind of a technical way, Jesus is essentially an embryo at this point, right? And baby John the Baptist, in utero, in Elizabeth's wombs, leaps for joy at the sound of Mary's voice. And Elizabeth knows supernaturally why, and she gives Mary supernatural confirmation of her visitation. Why is the, Lord, the, the mother of my Lord here to see me? What did I do to deserve this? There's this sense of expectation and announcement, and, and there's this, you know, words of uh, and, you know, confirmation and affirmation that are just supernatural in nature. Can I just point out to you that in the New Testament, repeatedly, that prophecy in the New Testament is typically not new information, just simply confirmation of what God has already revealed. And in general, when you look at the, the works of the prophets, even in the Old Testament, the vast majority of prophecy is just pointing back to what's already been said in the Word of God. It's not saying something new. In fact, I would challenge you, if, if you're saying something entirely new, it's not prophecy. It's, you know, it's not prophetic, it's pathetic, okay? So, um, so Mary replies with one of the most powerful and beautiful sonnets in the whole Bible. We call it the Mary Song, but it's really like a foretaste of the Sermon on the Mount, a foreshadowing of Jesus' message. It begins with Mary's own joy at being chosen by God despite her lack of status. She doesn't have wealth. She doesn't have power. There's no reason for her to be recognized, and yet she says, and here's the thing, and yet generations will call her blessed. Now, while I don't believe in the veneration of Mary like the Roman church does, I will say this, I think as Protestants we've really kind of dropped the ball as a whole. Sometimes we get so worried about looking like something else that we don't just do what we ought to do. And, and can I just simply say, like, I mean, she said yes. Like that we ought, she ought to have like a real place of significance in our heart. As we look at a text like that, we ought to be like celebrating yes. what she did and, and teaching not only our, our, our daughters but our sons, remembering ourselves, that what, what was so powerful in that. And so this is recorded as scripture, right? When she says that she will be called blessed in the same sentence as identifying with humility that's a cue for you and I to stop and remember how thoroughly amazing her decision actually is. It's not just that God chose her. It is that she said yes. Then she latches into this messianic promise 
uh, with a kind of mini Sermon on the Mount, right? And she begins to tell us all these things about the nature of God that she has is realizing in this moment. And so she says, He is the God of mercy. He's strong to deliver His people. He alone will bring down every kingdom that sets itself up against His people. He will tear down the prideful. He will humble the kings of men. He will feed the hungry and satisfy those who are spiritually hungry. He will prove the things of the world to be empty, things like wealth, power, and position. He will prove that he's faithful because he will keep all of his promises. If you just hold your finger there and you just scroll back a couple of chapters there to chapter 6, Maybe you go back over to Matthew 5 and you read the Sermon on the Mount. You're going to find all the same themes. See, it's intriguing to me how we have kind of developed this you know, antagonism between New Testament and Old Testament. I don't know why we do that. It doesn't exist. Over 80% of your Bible is just a direct quote from the Old Testament. When you read that God is loving, merciful, and that His love endures forever, when you read that He is the God who saves, when you read He is the God who justifies, like that's direct quotes from the Old Testament. It's not some new invention in the New Testament. It's not like God became a Christian and then suddenly changed His mind about everything. It, God has been the same today, yesterday, and forever. And so uh, when you and I look at this and, and we look and at Mary's song, where's Mary getting this all from? Well. It may be prophetic. She could be getting this from the Spirit of the Lord. It may also be from the very virtue of how she was trained. I mean, think about it. She said yes to God in the midst of one of the most trying and difficult things. She had this anticipation about Messiah that she was willing to put herself in this situation and knew that it could be challenging and difficult. Maybe she didn't understand the fullness of all of that due to her young age or whatever else. But I promise you, That when she said yes, it was founded deeply in who she was and her relationship with God. That's why God chose her. And out of the root of those things, out of what she had learned from the Old Testament and all of her growing up, she begins to confess these things about who God is. And what she's saying is God is merciful and just and kind. He is humble. He is good. He is trustworthy, right? She's confessing all these things. With Jesus, later on, when he gives the Sermon on the Mount, I promise you, it wasn't just out of the Spirit of God, but God put her in that home for a reason, God put Jesus in Mary's life and trusted Mary for a reason. And you and I see that confession coming out of her mouth that she speaks of who God is and the kind of God that we can trust. Of what his hope and his message is. And that it's not simply the forgiveness of sins. It includes that. Please don't Please do not take me out of context and say, well, pastor said, it, you know, it, it's just, you know, it's not just the forgiveness of sins is not the most important thing. No, 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 no. 
That's, that's kind of like kind of a cornerstone point. But then all of rescuing the cosmos not only includes forgiving our sins, but it's rescuing the cosmos. It's changing the order of things. It's bringing about justice in the world and things like that. So yes, there's correction in justice, but God's love and mercy, His forgiveness and His patience While God is a God of justice, typically correction comes through prophetic voices urging God's people simply to return to Him. But it's not because He wasn't first revealed as a God of love and mercy and kindness. And there, only after all the other resources have been exhausted, sometimes over the course of a hundred years of prophets saying, stop it, stop it. No, 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 look, look, don't do that. It's, it's, that's not going to go well for you. It's going to destroy you. Come back to this. Refocus. Come back. Come back. It's only when everything else has been exhausted that God sometimes lifts His hand of blessing and protection for the sake of correction. But the primary message throughout the Old Testament and into the New is the long-suffering of God, His incredible mercy accompanied by His provision and His protection. So let's bring the message of Advent home. When we put Jesus' first coming into that context, the promise of God's kingdom nestled in a kind of rescue that is much, much bigger than just the forgiveness. Again, don't miss the importance of the forgiveness. But when you read that, you also read about a kind of justice of the kingdom that is not limited to the end of times. When you read about the triumph of God's kingdom over the kingdoms of the world, do not limit it to the end of times. God's at work in the world right now. He's working through His people right now. And when we avail ourselves, when we say yes, God, to what God is doing, even when it is difficult, even when it is challenging, even when it may soil our reputation, even when it may put us in, in hardship and difficulty, even when in moments it may require God to hide us away to preserve our lives and things like that. In the midst of all of that, if we, if we have this trust in Him, the triumph of God's kingdom over the kingdoms of this world, don't limit it to the end of times. When you read about the feeding of the hungry, don't limit it to Jesus feeding the 5,000. I know that's usually the signature thing of mainline churches and not evangelical churches. But it's actually just the signature of the church in action to care about those who are poor, who are disfranchised, who are cut out minimized, disempowered. Don't limit his healing to the New Testament. Don't limit God's intervention in the world to the bookends of the first and the last century. Don't limit Advent to Christmas. Advent is a celebration that God is working in his world to rescue the entire cosmos. And it's your invitation to join him as he's at work in the world. See, that's really what we're celebrating. That's really what we're reminding ourselves is that God has been at work in his world and this exclamation point happened in history to tell you, look, 
I am bringing these things all about. And when you and I look at the remainder of history, like we have this anticipation, if he brought all of that to point here, what is the likelihood that he's going to bring it to that ultimate conclusion? Where every knee does bow, where every tongue does confess. What's the likelihood that he's at work in my world right now, and if I say yes to him, that I'll get to join him in the things he's doing, and, and, and I'll see God at work in my world? And not just in church. He's at work in the world. And, and despite the will of men, despite the works of darkness, he's bringing about his kingdom over the face of the earth. So now that over half of all people who have ever believed in Christ are alive right now at this very moment. Over 60% of all Christians who have ever lived are alive right now. Why wouldn't you say yes? Or you and I can listen to the voices that tell us that there's no place, that we're losing ground, and we can allow the cynicism of life in the world to absolutely steal our faith. That's not maturity, church. It's cynicism. And so you and I stand at the vantage point of right here and now in this whole thing, and the invitation of Advent is simply this, to believe that he came and he is still at work and that he is bringing all things to a conclusion where his kingdom will triumph over all the earth as the water fills the seas. So this particular Advent, your invitation, join in. That's the real invitation. Won't you join in? Won't you do what Mary said? Won't you just say, Lord, whatever you're doing, however you're working in the earth, however you want to work in me, may it be to me as you say. Let's stand together. I do love this time of year. In particular, I, you know, one of the things I can't help but notice is that uh, people tend to be a, a lot more generous. People tend to uh, be uh, kind to one another in a way. And I know, like, there's, you know, the internet stories of people doing dumb things on Black Friday and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and you and I know about those things. But, but let's be honest. The, the vast witness of what happens during this time of year as people are celebrating that Jesus came to us, whether they're Christians or not, uh, could be far away from the Lord, and yet they're somehow in the midst. It, it, it's, it's, it's like the Spirit of God is at work in the world, and somehow in the midst of all this celebration and remembrance that it stirs up the opportunity for people to to do the right thing. It's, it's like that the providence of God is at work in the world and holding all things together, Colossians 1.17 says, in such a way that the, the presence of God in the world, it just leavens 
the loaf, right? That there's things happening and, and it's a season of joy and celebration. And so I want to invite you this morning, if you find yourself in that place where uh, maybe cynicism has stolen the joy of your Christmas, um, maybe disappointment, maybe hardship, maybe marriage difficulties, maybe family difficulties, maybe physical issues that you might be facing, uh, I'm going to ask the prayer team to go ahead and come on up and let me invite you. Maybe just come and get some prayer and ask God to intervene in your world, maybe uh, in the way of justice, maybe in the way of healing, whatever it might be, but that you would just simply invite God into that place of your pain and ask, God, would you be with me? Would you be with me in maybe my depression or whatever else and asking God to be your point of rescue? Others, you know, you're here and... Um, you know, I know that the holiday season is a busy, busy season, and um, it's easy to get caught up in the, the celebration and forget the opportunity. And so I would say to you, if you're here today and um, maybe God is opening some doors relationally or uh, giving you opportunities to share the gospel, like, I want to invite you to come get some prayer and to make room in your heart and life, in your schedule, in the midst of all the craziness, for what God might be doing in someone else's life. To not let this moment escape. To not, you know, blow the moment on ourselves, but to actually invite people in to our lives, to the lives of our families. Maybe it's even to your celebrations. Invite them in for the sake of of the good news of the gospel. Last thing, I, I just really sense that there's some people here this morning that, um, uh, you know, uh, you're, you're, you're struggling physically, uh, you know, in the midst of all of this, and um, you're just confident that God has looked over your head. And so I want to invite you to come get some prayer this morning for healing in particular. Um, and, uh, you know, you don't box him in. He'll do it how he does it. But I'm just saying come and get some prayer for healing this morning if that's you. I uh, just want to invite you. Well, having said all of that, let's pray and let me let you get on your way. Father God, we're grateful for your son Jesus. We're grateful for the hope of eternal life. We're grateful that you are faithful to fulfill your word and all of your promises. And so, Lord, we're asking, would you come and uh, in uh, amidst us, uh, amidst us, and uh, Lord, would you fill us with your presence? Would you stir up within us a sense of expectation, and that we might be able to, like Mary, say yes to whatever you're doing in our lives, whatever you want to do with us, that we would be a people who would humble ourselves and say. Lord, may it be done to me, whatever the cost, whatever uh, it brings about, I have confidence in that you are rescuing the world and me in this process. And so, Lord, I just say, have your way today. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week. I hope to see you next week. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you did, there's two things you could do for me. First, subscribe to our channel. That way, the most recent podcast will always be in your feed, ready when you are. And secondly, if this ministry has impacted you, would you help us to continue to reach others? 
by clicking on the link in the description to give now. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to The Empowered Word.